Welcome to the Style Frame Saturdays podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Lee. Join me as I take a deep dive into the wonderful world of style frames and interview industry wizards when it comes to this stage of the animation process. For those who may not know, style frames are a piece of creative that are created in the pre-production phase of an animation project, and they help creators and clients alike get an idea of the overall style of the piece. Sometimes the initial vision is carried through to the end, and other times it ends up on the cutting room floor. During this podcast, we'll discuss projects of all shapes and sizes, and the challenges, rewards, and lessons learned while developing what I like to call each guest's favorite frame. Before we jump in, though, I'd like to give a big shout out to two people who are veterans when it comes to podcasting, and who were so kind to give me pointers on getting this podcast started. Thank you, Haley Aikens of Motion Hatch and Liam Clisham for your help leading up to this day. I'm honored to call you guys colleagues and friends, and I'm very appreciative of all the tips that you've shared. And speaking of Liam, I'd like to introduce today's guest, Liam Clisham. Hey, Liam, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How's everything going? Oh, thanks for having me. It's going pretty well, the holiday season. (laughs) Very nice. Did you guys do anything special for the holidays or kind of stay local and uh, keep it quiet and calm and, you know, just kind of do your own thing? Yeah, mostly staying local. I think the most exciting thing is we saw Spider-Man last night. So (laughs) um, we were all very excited for that. So that. As much as Christmas is awesome, we, I think we're all more excited for Spider-Man. Awesome. I've heard good things about the movie. I haven't gone to see it myself yet. Um, hopefully, maybe we'll get ourselves to a movie theater. It's been a couple of years since we've been in a movie theater. But um, yeah. I've heard good things across the board about the movie. Very. It's uh, a great way to tie everything up, for sure. Very cool. I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that so there's no spoilers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, no spoilers. <laughs> Um, okay, so well, for anyone who doesn't know you, would you mind telling our audience a little bit about yourself? You know how you got into motion design and animation, what kind of work you do. You know, are you freelance, staff, or you're based out of? You know, just a little bit about your journey so far. Yeah, um, I will try and keep it succinct because it's been quite the journey. <laughs> so currently, I'm based out of Bel Air, Maryland, which is about thirty or so minutes north of Baltimore. Um, and I am now staff after being a longtime freelancer at a company called Recur. And you can check them out at recurforever.com. I'm senior motion designer there and hopefully moving up the ranks <laughs> as well throughout that. Um, but in short, we create digital collectibles and NFTs um, for really big name brands. We're one of like the first studios, if not the first studios to kind of do that. Um, but as a short career path, um, basically in high school, I was really into graphic design. I was really fortunate to go to a high school in New Hampshire that um, I guess was pretty technology advanced. And we had a whole graphic design wing of the school. Um, so by the time I graduated from high school, I essentially had an associate's degree in graphic design. Tried to go to college. I liked the social aspects of college too much. <laughs> I didn't really go to class as Who much as I should the have. Social aspects. <laughs> yeah, um, I really liked going to my art classes, and I had like some cool statistics professors that I really liked. But then the rest of it, I was just like, "What is the point of this when I'm going to be a graphic designer?" So this was probably around 2006 or seven. I eventually dropped out, and I worked retail for a while. I also had a tattoo apprenticeship for a while and I tattooed people. Very cool. Um, I continued to work freelance graphic design, 
until um, I'd say like 2009 and the economy started to crash. I was a store manager of GameStop uh, at that point and I just kind of hated where life was going. I was like, man, I'm living in New Hampshire, not really doing anything, just working retail. So uh, I have two older sisters and one of them asked me if I wanted to move down to Maryland and house me while I finished college because they knew that I was kind of struggling. So the rest is kind of history. I moved down to Maryland. I started going to Towson University after transferring from a community college and getting my start and foot back in the door there. And I guess my second or third semester at Towson, uh, my advisor suggested I take a motion design course. And I thought that was going to be the worst idea possible because I want to be a graphic designer. I want to go like work with Paula Shore and do like fancy logos and things like that. She's like, no, I think like you would really like motion design. So I begrudgingly signed up for the course and showed up for like this four hour <laughs> lecture twice a week. And by the end of the first night, I was like, oh, by the way, are we allowed to swear? I should have asked that. <laughs> I was just going to say, I didn't put a disclaimer at the beginning of this. Um, yeah. We'll keep it as minimal as possible, but, you know, throw okay. in the ones that are, that, like, really are passionate, you're passionate about with the story. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I'll, I'll keep it as clean as possible. But <laughs> basically, it blew my mind that, like, I could take my designs and bring them to life. And one of the things I was really kind of not liking about design at the time was, like, I'd make a poster, the event would happen. And that was it. Like it would just go in the trash right. and that was history. And like you're bringing designs to life essentially. And then they live and they go out and people see it and they react to it. And they kind of, they seem more memorable to a broader audience than just general design. Um, so that really attracted me to it. So I kind of got started as a 2D motion designer. Um, I was very fortunate that the professor of that class also had his own small boutique studio and invited me to intern oh, there cool. as soon as the course ended. Yeah. Um, and so the, yeah, like I was saying, the rest is kind of history. It just set me on a path to be a motion designer from that point forward. Um, I needed to get a full-time job eventually and they couldn't bring me on full-time at this small studio. And he used to be an art director at discovery. So he got me in the door at discovery channel. Nice. I was there um, a little over a year and we ended up having our second kid and I was kind of getting tired of the commute down to Washington, DC where discovery used to be. So I went freelance and did that up until November of, the, of this year. Very so cool. yeah. And kind of ran the gamut of traditional 2d picked up a lot of 3d stuff while I was at discovery, just the team I was on didn't have anyone doing 3D besides the creative director. Um, so I kind of jumped into that role and learned a lot of Cinema 4D while I was there. And it kind of just stuck. And I do a lot of 3D now, mostly in Houdini. Very cool. I was just going to follow up to that too. As you know, you just said at the tail end, you know, how you got into cinema and everything. What got you into Houdini? Because I feel like when you look at your Instagram account and uh, you know, the work that you post on social, it's, um, it's a lot of Houdini stuff, you know, a lot of ex exploration stuff that you do, but then also like client stuff. So what got you into Houdini and what attracted you to that program? Yeah. Um, so the first time I heard of Houdini was maybe like a month or two after I went freelance oh. from discovery, I was on a job and another motion designer leaned over to me like, Hey, do you know Houdini? And I was like, I've never even heard of this thing. It's like, check out this guy oh. over there. And he was like making 
the CEO of the company come out of uh, a lamp like a genie. I was like, man, that's pretty amazing. I'm not anywhere near that yet, so don't care. And I guess may like maybe it just like stuck in the back of my head, but um, my buddy Mark Sonosa and I have been friends for a while, and we were working on projects. And we were working on, on an X-Particles project. And I had been dabbling with Houdini a little bit just because I was getting tired of X-Particles workflow and not being able to handle as much as I needed it to. So Mark and I were on this project and I was like, Mark, do you care if I try and do this in Houdini? Because like, we're just hitting a brick wall with this thing that we're trying to complete. And he's like, you know what, if you want to go for it, you think you can do it, go for it. And I was able to do everything that I was doing in X particles and get it to work exactly how we needed within like two days. And that kind of wow. like solidified it for me. I was like, wow, like I've been struggling for a week inside of X particles and C4D. And I just did this in a couple of days in Houdini. What else can I do with Houdini that I just didn't realize was possible? And that was like the final bug that got me hooked to it. Um, so it was mostly just finally getting to a point in Cinema 4D where I couldn't go any further. Right, right. So do you find yeah. that you're doing more Houdini than C4D stuff, or is it really just like a pure mix of the two based on the projects that you're working on, like especially at Recur? Yeah. Um, I would say this past year of freelance up until November, I was mostly getting hired for Houdini work and the little bits of C4D would be sending stuff out to whoever was doing look dev to take the animations I had done in C4D and apply that look dev to that in C4D or sorry, what I had done animations in Houdini apply that to C4D and gotcha. the, their lights and materials and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, I think maybe I had one or two jobs this year that were C4D based. Um, but it seems like a lot of people are kind of understanding that if you need fast or more organic looking stuff or like, um, stuff that's going to be really iterative and you need like different versions of things that Houdini's the place to go for that. Interesting. So, yeah, um, it's been a big change because the project that I was talking about with Mark was probably around like 2018, 2019, tail end of 2018 into 2019. Um, and I would say like 2019, even though it's 2020 a little bit, I, I've had maybe like a handful of Houdini jobs. And then it's just like, oh, you know, Houdini, we could use you for this or we could use you for this or this or this. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of been a weird transition lately. Wow. That's pretty cool yeah. though. I mean, I feel like from what I've seen, at least, um, a lot of people are either doing Houdini or trying to get into Houdini. And if not getting into Houdini, trying to do stuff like you were saying in X particles, <clears throat> excuse me. So it seems like a lot of people are really trying to learn a bit more about simulations and stuff like that. That's pretty in demand. Um, I mean, I haven't seen the movie yet myself either, but, um, just in the trailer alone, like there's some beautiful simulation stuff. And I don't know if it's done with Houdini, but in that Pixar's Encanto, um, oh, yeah. looks incredible. So, yeah. you know, I feel like Houdini 
unreal you know all this real-time stuff you know this is like what everyone's really starting to get into and i have to admit i yeah. haven't touched any of it yet so <laughs> i'm definitely behind the curve yeah i'm so what i'm really interested in for the future with houdini is hopefully it, it kind of dropping the stereotype that it's mostly used for vfx and like that type of and like particle stuff because mm -hmm. i even do like simple MoGraph in it now because oh, really? it just holds up um, like stability now okay. much more than I'm finding with C4D. Um, and like, I love the Maxon guys and not to like crap on them a bunch, but <laughs> it's, it seems like a little bit since the mergers happened and things like that, that there's been a little bit of rockiness with stability inside of um, Cinema 4D mm -hmm. that I'm just not getting in Houdini. Um, so that's another thing that drives me to it is like, okay, yeah, it's a little bit simpler inside C4D, but if I'm crashing five times in a day, right, <laughs> that, right. that kind of takes me out of that flow state where if I'm in Houdini, okay, it's a little bit more complicated to set up, but I'm just going and I don't have to worry about that. I feel um, like it's so common of MoGraph artists too, to just sort of know a swath of different you know, programs, because like you're saying, you know, well, I could do this easier in Houdini, so I'll jump into here. But without yeah. a doubt, you know, however many hours later, you're like jumping into the other thing because that handles this other aspect really well. And then just for compositing purposes, I mean, you know, probably jumping into like, you know, something like After Effects or whatever. So, I mean, it's no surprise to hear you talk about it and say, you know, like, well, I'm using this, but then I'm also using that. It's just, I feel like it's so common in this industry. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And like at Recur, because you had mentioned it, we've, we're all using different things all the time. Like we've got, I don't know, three or four different verticals that we're, we're split apart into. And if you talk to one vertical, they'll say, oh yeah, we're all C4D based. And you talk to another one, like, oh, we're all After Effects based. <laughs> and you talk to our vertical. It's like a lot of us are using Houdini, but then we'll also jump between verticals. And so now we might have an artist that's starting in Houdini, but then finishing in C4D and then jumping into After Effects. So yeah, it's totally a hodgepodge in for the sure. industry for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool though. Yeah. Well, I'd love to jump into the main event of the show um, sure. and talk about your favorite frame that you're going to be sharing with us today. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the piece that you've selected? Sure. Yeah. I'm just going to bring it up really quickly. Um, so I'll say, I don't know if it's so much my favorite frame that I've worked on, but it felt like a turning point for me. And okay. that's kind of why I selected it. Um, so the frame is this job that I got hired for with Sketchers, and they had a updated or a new version of this shoe coming out that was waterproof, and they wanted to show it in an outdoor environment, possibly going up into these clouds and getting some moisture on it and the moisture kind of wicking off. And for me, I was at this point still kind of converting over to Houdini, but because of all the elements that were going to be required for this production with having some clouds and water wicking off the shoe and um, all of that and like environmental stuff with some landscapes, I really wanted to try and do the entire gig inside of Houdini. So wow. that was a big turning point for me. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So this, this, is really like my first full project 
uh, commercial project, I should say, with a client being completely done in Houdini. Wow. Um, so yeah, that's kind of why I, I chose it. It's like, man, this is like a big turning point for me. Um, and like stylistically, it's just, you know, it's a product shot and there's not anything too fancy going on. It's a shoe floating above some clouds and you've got the sun in the background kind of giving a little bit of highlight behind the shoe and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the background of it. So the whole, the whole piece, shoe model, clouds, sort of the volume, volumetrics that are in the scene, everything was done in Houdini. Yeah. Everything was done in Houdini wow. except for the model. I didn't take oh, okay. care of any of the model. Yeah. The modeling, um, Sketchers has an internal department or they at least hire really great freelancers to do their models and, um, things like that. So I was given the model and the textures. So I brought all the textures in, uh, remade the materials and got them all set up and UV correctly and brought inside Houdini. So, um, 99.9% of it, the, just take, taking the model out of the equation. Right. Very cool. Yeah. No, it looks beautiful. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I guess as far as like stylistically or aesthetics or things like that, is there anything you want me to go over? Um, so I guess you kind of were talking about how the brief is sort of like, we want to, I guess, um, talk about, I guess what the shoe can sort of withstand. Right. And so yeah. talking about the elements a bit. Um, so yeah. Um, if you could go over a little bit more of that, like what stylistically, stylistically, sorry, drove you to sort of, you know, put it in the environment that it's in and, you know, maybe go through some of these other frames that you shared. Um, in addition to like the main one, um, that would be really yeah. cool to kind of like break down, you know, what went into the thought process and how you kind of came to this, like overall aesthetic. Yeah. So initially I was handed a, I guess an animatic is kind of like it's kind of a hodgepodge of clips that the creative director had put together and one thing that was really interesting was they were all indoor shots and they're like yeah like we really like the movement of these shots and how they kind of push in and go around the object but the one thing that it's missing is that it's inside so we want to explore what it'd be like outside um, and as we look through the frames and talk about it, you'll see the evolution a little bit mm -hmm. where initially it seemed like, okay, what if this shoe was just, you know, outside and somebody's walking around and there's some puddles and we didn't want the main focus to be the wetness and the wicking away of okay. that. Um, so it was more like, okay, it pushes through the clouds and maybe there's some moisture that's left behind on the shoe and then we'll push in and see that kind of just like drip away. But as we went further into the project and of course there's more um, talking heads for lack of a better term, getting involved, right? they wanted to see like, well, how far can we push the wetness with the shoe? And you know, what if somebody's wearing this and they're running and then it starts to be like a torrential downpour? Can we see like more heavy wetness coming from that? So, um, I'm just going to go forward to the next one. So you'll see in the second frame, it's kind of the situation of what I was talking about of just like, all right, what if the person steps in a puddle 
shoe kind of tilts down and we just see this water wicking off, but it's still yeah. kind of like a sunny day in the background. Mm -hmm. And then um, the next frame was another test of like, all right, how much water can we start to show on this thing and beating up? Um, so this is more of a detailed shot of, okay, we've really got some water on here. And then by the time we get to the, uh, I guess the blocking test, but really like the final rough, um, you start to see that we're really kind of getting pretty involved with water. So I'm playing through the blocking test mm -hmm. right now. Um, and by like, I guess 10 seconds in or so, you'll see like, okay, there's quite a bit of water moving off the shoe right. and then it dries off really quickly. And then it, the next shot shows uh, like this purple going over the fabric to show, yeah, it's this enhanced fabric that kind of wicks the water mm -hmm. away mm -hmm. and then we settle back down into the shoe. But then if we go into the final rough, you'll see it gets to be like a full torrential downpour. Um, <laughs> and quite different and just like really pushing like how far can we go with this shoe being wet and then drying off immediately um even just the the overall lighting and composition of it changed too where before we kind of had like a nice i don't know like afternoon sunset in the background and kind of right warm and well lit and then now it's a lot darker and uh cloudier and things like that. So um, the whole process <laughs> changed through the whole thing and even like what shots we were going to do and um, stuff like that. I was but, just going to say, I love how it started out as like, well, we don't want to show somebody just simply walking in a puddle to kind of, you know, show what the shoe is capable of. We really want to like do something like a little bit more elaborate and romantic. Um, and it, I mean, based on what you, you're sharing, it looks exactly like that, which, so it's really cool to go from like, just even concept wise, Oh, let's, you know, showcase somebody walking with the shoe too. Let's really like make it the, you know, the star of the show and like put it in this like sort of godlike environment type of thing and show the elements really interacting with it. So from that perspective too, it's really cool. Um, excuse me, really cool to see that. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced as you, you know, were working on the creative development and uh, visual aesthetic of this piece? Yeah. Um, I'd say really like the visual exploration was pretty straightforward. The creative director I was working with was really good at communicating. Um, a lot of the technical aspects were the hardest part. And I, I had to share this with you in the email. I, I was pushed up against another project with this. So I was only booked for two weeks to do this. Okay. And then I was going to start another project and then come back to it. Um, so we were really trying to push as much as we could out in two weeks of, all right, maybe two days we're gonna do look dev, and then two days we're gonna start doing exploration, maybe three days of like what the water could look like. And then the following week is just like, doing sims and rendering and doing sims and rendering and doing sims and rendering and just trying to get that as far as we could in such a short period of time. And then I had to jump off for another booking and I came back to work with Skechers on something. I thought I was going to be coming back for this when they called me and asked if I wanted to come back for a freelance project. And 
as far as I know, this <laughs> was killed. Um, <laughs> Cause I, I had access to all the Dropbox files and nobody had worked on it. And I asked about it and like, yeah, it's kind of just sitting there for now. Um, so that was also interesting too, is like how fast they wanted to move on this project mm -hmm. to, all right, Liam's jumping off and all right, I guess the project's dead. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was really, yeah. It, the most challenging part, I guess, was like the intensity of the, technical hurdles of doing this gotcha um, yeah the look dev was like for me there's it's not it's not like the fanciest piece it's just kind of like an outdoor environment and um yeah just kind of exploring it floating in this space and that's pretty straightforward i feel like you know most mid-level motion designers could probably handle doing this kind of setup um so aesthetically it is what it is. It's just straightforward, but then yeah, these technical hurdles. Right. Right. And this was going to be a piece that was going to be like, uh, you know, like a marketing piece or was it going to be for, where was it ultimately going to live? <clears throat> Had it like gone through fully? Do you happen to know or have no idea? I, I don't actually fully know because the creative director I was working with kind of didn't know either. Um, okay. because their marketing team, from what I understand is, making videos not only for internal use that they have TVs around Skechers headquarters that they kind of just play cool videos oh, like cool. this. Um, but sometimes they go off and live on a website or sometimes they're created specifically for like a Japanese market or a German market or things like that. And so the CD kind of I guess is at a point in his career where he just doesn't ask where they go anymore. And they're just like, make this video and he just does it. And then it goes off and lives <laughs> wherever it's going to live. Um, which I, you know, that kind of sounds, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? It kind of sounds detrimental to the process when you don't know where something's going to live and who the audience is going to be. But at the same time, it's kind of freeing to just be like, make this thing look cool right exactly. it's gonna go live wherever it's gonna live it's like the ultimate creative freedom yeah it's it is the ultimate creative freedom excuse me and but also um daunting <laughs> yes. like, is this audience even gonna like this that's true too. do they even care and like does marketing even care like do they just want something cool and they're trying to churn and burn something out there so uh yeah it, it's very freeing and daunting at the same time. I'm sure a lot of people can agree with that too. <laughs> I know I yeah. can. It's sort of like when someone approaches you and they're like, we don't really have an idea in mind, so have at it. You're sort of like, okay, cool. And the, but then you're sort of like, oh man, I have no constraints to work with and nothing to really kind of like reel me in. So yeah, I could start from thin air and th that is daunting. Um, yeah. But then you could be on the flip side of it too, where it's sort of like we have so many constraints and, you know, that brings its own challenges too. So, uh, yeah, no, I can totally understand where you're coming from with that. Yeah. And yeah, speaking of constraints, like I I've done those like everyday projects that everyone's tried to do. And I've always found that when it, things are too open ended, I can't get going in everyday projects. So I used to do like simple constraints of, all right, we're only going to do black and white. All right. I'm going to work mostly focusing on using the color red just to like have some sort of constraint. Mm -hmm. Um, cause yeah, sometimes creative freedom is actually like 
handcuffs a little bit. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, you were saying, you know, you were only booked on this for two weeks. So if anything, maybe that was maybe one constraint to consider, you know, like you only yeah. had two weeks to work on this. So li literally from look dev all the way through to what the final, you know, rough was going to be at least, you know, it's sort of like, okay, well, technically, like you were saying, what the technical challenges that were coming up, what is possible and, you know, what can we get done that's going to look like really nice for wherever this uh, piece is going to live. So, you know, yeah. sometimes even those time constraints, you know, they can be daunting, but at the same time, it's sort of like, well, maybe this will push things a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And like, it, it definitely was that balancing act because this ended up only needing to be a 15 second or so piece. So no, as I, I don't know who's listening to this, but as people are getting into motion design, that can either be really daunting to some people like, oh, wow, 15 minutes of animation that I have to do, but. Oh, it's going to be 15 with, minutes? Or sorry, 15 seconds. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah 15, that is daunting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, 15 <laughs> seconds of animation to do. Um, when I've come from a background of doing like two or three minute long explainer videos, like True. for me, I was like, oh, wow, like I can just really focus on this and this and this and hit these like five to seven key shots mm -hmm. and just make them look as good as possible and simple. And then the rest of the time, it's just like tackle these technical things. So, right. um, yeah, definitely, you know, balancing act for sure. But also nice. That was kind of just 15 seconds. For sure. So I think you may have touched upon this a little bit already, but would you say that the biggest reward out of, you know, working on this style frame and the project overall was the fact that like you were really able to hone in on some of the Houdini skills that you were starting to practice at the time? Or were there other sort of like, you know, uh, happy moments or happy accidents or other rewards that, you know, are memorable from this piece as well? Yeah. Um, technical hurdles and challenges that was really rewarding to kind of get over all those hurdles and kind of that fear of leaving Cinema 4D behind and that being <laughs> where I have my like safe blanket for rendering. Uh -huh. um, that was great. I would say too, kind of like how fast I was able to work too. Like, I don't know, sometimes we get really comfortable <laughs> in our creative processes and like, okay, I need to do A before I do B. I need to do B before I do C. And when you get a time crunch like this, where you only have two weeks to light and texture and animate, and then also do simulations and stuff like that, it kind of forces you to streamline your creative process down to what's the most important. That's a very good um, point. Yeah. So I feel like this was also a little bit of a turning point for me to kind of clean up my creative process a little bit and realize it doesn't have to be so linear. Like I, I can jump around a little bit. I can pick and choose. I can, I don't have to be um, so stubborn <laughs> going through this right. cre creative process. Yep. Um, yeah. So I, I would say those are the two main things that really kind of surprised me coming out of that is what is my actual creative process and the importance or the important parts of it. And then also just, technical hurdles like wow I, I was able to do this very cool i mean if you don't mind going into it a little bit more if, if you remember um because i yeah. think you had said this is a project from 2018 or 2019 like 
2019, I think. 2019? <laughs> I have to go back. Yeah. If you remember, because I know we're already going like, yeah. you know, a couple of years out from now. Um, you know, you had said uh, it really helped you to sort of figure out your own creative process with, you know, the time constraints and the technical aspects of this. Um, would you, do you remember and would you be willing to share, you know, like what that creative process was going into these frames and this piece overall? Like, did you start out with, you had mentioned uh, you got the model of the shoe. Um, yep. Did it come, you know, textured and with the materials and everything? Or did you kind of have to like build that out? Like, was that where you started or did you really focus on um, the environment more so at first? Um, you know, if you'd be willing yeah. to share that, that'd be really cool. Yeah. Um, maybe it'd be good to do like a contrast of what my normal workflow is. And that might help me sure. <laughs> remember what, what I cut out. But yeah. Having such a like like strong graphic design background, I was really brought up brought up <laughs> um, <laughs> to do like thumbnails and sketching and like uh, what's the, oh my gosh uh, mind mapping and stuff like that and like the eighty twenty rule of you know eighty eighty percent should be focused on pre production so the twenty percent of actual production goes as smoothly as possible and getting into this and talking to the CD, it's like, so do you want me to do some thumbnails and stuff? He's like, no, man, like just go. So, um, all of that pre-production that I normally do was cut out and I got the model. It had texture files in there, but there weren't any materials set up. There wasn't lighting or anything set up. It was bringing the model, make sure you relink all the textures where they need to go. Mm -hmm. And then, um, we started with this floating, shoe scene that we've mostly been focusing on just because we knew like okay this is going to be like the key shot where it comes up and then we're going to have water kind of just dripping off of it so let's see how it looks up in the sky with the sun behind it and you know the sun's in a few different positions and we tried a few different things mm-hmm. um but really it was kind of like running guns like once i landed that they're like okay now we want to see it starting on this terrain and it's going to lift up into the sky and go through this. And then we're going, going to want to see it from this angle and then another angle and another angle. And I think that's kind of where that blocking test came from was, okay, okay we've nailed two shots. Let's kind of do a quick blocking of, we want to see the sketcher's frame on the front. We want to see the shoe, then the cloud, then let's see what the water could possibly look like. And then, this detail of the mesh lighting up and then the shoe coming back down. I love that. I think that's so cool. That part. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Um, But it was very, just like, like I said, running, like go in and do it, like scrap, scrap the rest. um, Cause we just don't have time. And maybe if I was on a longer booking, they would have said, okay, go ahead and do some thumbnails and sketching and storyboarding and things like that. Um, but I think, you know, it's just one of those corporate environments where they've got so many videos going on and things to get out that maybe that's just not a part of their process and they'd rather just see it and tweak and iterate and go. And that's kind of become a much bigger part of my process now is just how important it is to be comfortable with iterating quickly and like... Mm-hmm failing quickly and be like, all right, this just isn't working. Go on to the next thing and we'll figure it out. Um, and I don't know if that's like such a good thing or not, where am I missing out from 
that pre-production creative process to make that 20% easier? Or I, I, I guess I kind of need to figure that out as I go forward into the new year. I, I want to reevaluate, but is this a better way to go? Just seeing things visually and creating and right. scrapping it if I need to. Um, so yeah, it's kind of been a weird creative spiritual awakening for me <laughs> from that point forward. I mean, I think that thinking, I think, think, I feel like that, you know, thinking applies even to the project where you do have some even longer time too. like, yeah, I think that's become kind of like a popular phrase, like, you know, like fail quickly and then learn from yeah. it kind of thing. Um, so you could have all the time in the world too, for that creative part in the beginning and maybe internally some, you know, uh, creative pieces that you're putting together aren't jiving. So then you need to like, you know, go back to the drawing board again. And, uh, and yeah, you only have X amount of days on that booking. So, yeah. you know, yeah, I can imagine on a two week booking job that, you know, you were really going through iterations, like really quick in those first few days, I'm sure. How, I mean, how yeah. long was it between, you know, your first day to like, when you really got all the blockings out that, you know, they were like, yeah, this looks good. This is the direction that we want to go. Yeah. I, I mean, by the end of like day two, maybe I started wow. putting together like blocking videos. Yeah. That's so crazy. Was, yeah. Day one, get the model, get all the texturing set up, make a cloud and, <laughs> and then light it with this, like the redshift has like a sun setting in, uh -huh. in it. So just like, all right, create a sun scene and put it behind it. Um, then day two was, all right, can we try the sun over here, over here? Maybe the shoe's a little bit angled more, not so angled, things like that. Okay, now that you got that, can you quickly like throw in a terrain and all this stuff and just like slap it together? And it's yeah, I, th I think by by the end of day two, I was basically sending them this like automatic type thing. That's crazy. So then, so then from day two, it was really like, okay, now we've got the creative direction, and it was Houdini for the rest of the time, or <laughs> like yeah, all the simulations I, based stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was thinking back on it by day three into four is more like, can we move the camera here for this shot? And can we sure. kind of have some like more purple here? Because I, I think the way they were thinking about it was if we can land the, the shots and the angles right now, then going into animation and simulation, we already know where we need to be looking for things. Mm -hmm. So, I don't need to focus on water rolling off the back because it's not going to be back there. So I right. know that the simulation only needs to be here. And for this scene where it's sitting on the ground, there's not going to be any water because we're transitioning out of it and things like that. So um, that kind of helped me with my creative process too, is if you really think about your shots ahead of time, which I guess storyboarding does, but sometimes when you get in there, you start to realize that the storyboarding doesn't line exactly. up as well as you want. Yeah. Um, that, okay, as you move into the next steps, it's so much faster because you've already locked in these positions and how you want things to animate and where they need to go. So it's a really nice guideline. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've seen a lot of people kind of combine, you know, um, storyboards and boardomatics kind of into one thing sometimes too, for that specific yeah. reason, because they're sort of like, well, in our, in our minds, we know that we want the camera to go this way, but we could be completely missing like this one aspect that we're really trying to like make a feature of this shot. Um, and it makes you, like you just said, you know, completely 
reverse gears and say like, you know, well, maybe we we need to rethink, oh, excuse me, marbles, mouthful of marbles over here, Um, rethink how, you know, we're going to maybe frame this out. And, you know, and that could change, like, kind of like the style of this particular shot and everything. Um, So that's really cool, you know, that like even some of the techniques kind of are driving the creative too, which is fascinating. Yeah. And um, what was it? The Mitchells versus the Machines. We just bought the DVD for that because I specifically wanted the behind the scenes stuff. And they even talk about that a little bit of, yeah, we went into it stylistically like this, but then as we actually got into 3D, we realized, no, we want to be closer to our storyboards. So we started doing some more hand animations and things like that, that um, we wouldn't have thought of until we started actually getting to production. So yeah, production sure. can totally revamp what you had your initial aspirations to be. So true. That's so true. Well, um, unless you have anything else that you'd like to share about the frame, um, I feel like, you know, this was really cool, like really cool insight into, you know, how you went from the whole, you know, style, the constraints of the whole project being that, you know, you really only had two weeks on it to then deliver this you know, fully fleshed out rough in that time frame. Um, I think it's a really cool behind the scenes look at into this frame, into this project that you worked on. Um, so yeah, if you have anything else you'd like to add, um, you know, yeah, feel no, free to I do think so. This was great. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I honestly didn't know I could, I could talk so much about a <laughs> single frame or a couple of frames. So uh, very, very interesting. And uh, uh, I'm excited to see this format for other artists as well that like if I can talk this much about a single frame, what can other people say? Yeah, no, I'm I'm very curious to see what other people have to say when they talk about their frames on the show as well. Well, yeah, Liam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You know, I really enjoyed learning about you know your background in animation and motion design and your contribution to the Sketchers project. You know, regarding this favorite frame of yours, if people want to connect with you and learn more about what you're working on, what's the best way for them to do so? Sure. Yeah, that is an interesting question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not freelancing so much, I was going under the handle as 531, and you can totally go to 5-31. So 5 is spelled out F-I-V-E-numeral31.com. Um, that is my website right now. But on a lot of social media, I'm starting to transition back to my name for Liam Clisham. So if you Google Liam Clisham, you can find me for sure. Um and if you look for 531, you can still find me floating around in some places too. But I'm kind of transitioning since I've gone back into full time. Multiple ways to find you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Um, thank you so much again, Liam. It's been a pleasure talking with you and getting a glimpse into your creative world. Uh, we'll be sharing links to some of the you know little tools and resources that we mentioned here, um, as well as some of the places and studios that we've mentioned as well for the audience to check out. Um, but yeah, that about wraps it up for today, everybody. Uh, feel free to email us at styleframesatpod at gmail.com. We'll drop a little blurb at the bottom so you can get that um, without just listening to it. Um, and uh, we'd love to hear what you think of the show and if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions. Also, come connect with us on social. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Um, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Thank you.